0: We need to have a margin of safety in anything we're doing, whether it's time, whether it's investing, whether it's anything we do, we need to think about, okay, what are several things that could go wrong? And if they all went wrong, what kind of, what would be the effect?
1: I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world.
2: Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to RoadToFamilyFreedom.com slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom.
1: Our guest this week is the founder of Wellings Capital. He's also the host of the outstanding How to Lose Money podcast, Paul Moore, welcome to The Road to Family Freedom. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. I'm honored. No, it's great to have you. Yeah. And it's good to see you again.
2: So let's get started. Would you tell us your story about how you got into real estate?
0: Oh, okay. Well, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try to make it uh, a little bit briefer. I got an, an engineering degree, and that was my first mistake. And then I actually went back for an MBA and at Ohio State. I went to Ford Motor Company, and I found myself a month or two into Ford, even though I really liked it, trying to do different things on the side. I tried to start an oil chain shop, and I started a property tax consulting business. At least I got a business card. And uh, on the side in the evenings and weekends. And so about five years later, a, a buddy of mine and I left Ford And we started our own professional employer organization, which was an outsourced HR firm. And we did really well with that. And Wall Street got really enamored with that business type of business. And about five years later, we were able to sell to a publicly traded company. And my partner moved to Colorado Springs before that, in fact. And I moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I thought, hey, I'm going to be a great dad. I'm going to raise my kids. We had two at the time. We have four now. We've got mountains. We moved to the top of a mountain with 120 acres. And I thought, I'm going to be a great dad. I'm going to passively invest. I am going to just have a great time raising my kids and and be involved with them. And I found out that I became the worst version of myself because I was mid-30s, highly energized, type A entrepreneur. And I was sitting at home doing really nothing. We started a nonprofit organization for international students, but that was just kind of slow moving. So I found myself confusing speculating and investing. Now, in my mind, investing is when you've got a fairly safe principle, fairly protected principle, and you've got a chance to make a profit. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you have a chance to make a profit. And so I confused the two and I got involved in all kinds of high risk highly leveraged things I lost money in. Like an investor in Charlotte who was making 3% a month on my money trading forex or something and you know he still won't tell the 18 the um 2000 investors he had where that 18 million he hit offshore was. He's in uh, year 16 I think of his 157 year sentence with the, uh, in the federal penitentiary. But I got involved in all kinds of stuff. By the way, I wasn't involved with him. I just invested passively with him. But I realized, hey, I'm bored and real estate was seemed like a smart thing to do. So my buddy and I started flipping houses before the term flipping mm-hmm. ever came into existence. And so we flipped dozens of homes. Then we started flipping waterfront lots. And that's how I got started.
1: So we're big believers in beginning with the end in mind when it comes to any sort of goal. Like, what's your So what's your destination? Where is real estate taking you, Paul Moore?
0: That's a great question. And one thing I've learned over the years is a lot of people who are chasing real estate part-time feel like they need to climb this ladder, you know, doing one flip house, then two, and then a wholesale or then a lease option. And I don't know if that is i don't I don't know if that's the best way to get to most people's goal. I think a lot of people are frustrated because it is so hard to do part time but I think a good goal for people would be to think ahead to when they don't want to work full time anymore or they can't work full time anymore or they want to retire and so I think the goal would be to create a you know, multiple passive income streams. To me, that would be a great goal.
1: Well, we um, I often talk about this, about your W-2 job being a, a single point of failure. Even, even if it's a nice, safe, secure job, even if you're a postal worker, even if you're an IRS agent, uh, we have an IRS agent friend right now who's working without pay because the government shut down. And, you know, you, even if you have a nice, safe, secure job, you're one car accident away from losing the ability to work or one cancer diagnosis, whatever. So it's really, um, so what you, I I completely agree with what you said. Right.
2: Do you feel like that's kind of where you're at already? Or is that kind of your goal for
0: yourself? I actually, I slowed down once, as I said, in my mid thirties and it was miserable And I've seen some statistics pointing to the fact that when people slow down from their work, they tend to not do so well with their health. And uh, there were some statistics at Ford Motor Company that I never saw in writing, so I won't quote them, but they are pretty shocking about how soon people tend to pass away after they retire. And so I really don't plan to slow down. I don't really plan to stop working, but my goal is to create passive wealth for other people who do want to. So actually, I don't really want to. I'm sure I'll slow down at some point. I'm sure I'll continue to narrow my focus, but I actually don't really have a desire to stop working myself.
2: Yeah. Well, I think a lot of times the people who are the most successful and do continue to have really fulfilling lives, they don't ever really stop working. It's just that their work sometimes becomes something that's maybe not super monetarily lucrative necessarily, or is kind of hobby-based or more about giving back to people. I saw in your info sheet that you uh, help fund fighting for human trafficking and victims of that. So it sounds like, you know, that's still work. It may be not something that is making you money, but it's, it's a purpose. It's something to keep you moving and what's amazing about real estate and passive income is that it allows you to to pursue those things that you couldn't before. You know, if you're, you're having to work a nine to five job, sometimes you don't have the option to work in that in a business that fulfills that part of you. And right. this allows you to do that. And that's kind of, I think for us is really where we would like to go and kind of pursue some of those more outrageous wants and, and things that, yeah. that we can't do right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Can I mention something about how we get involved in trafficking, by the way?
2: Of I, yeah, I would love to hear about it.
0: So I don't know if you heard these statistics, but if you took the record year profits, not the average, the record profits of Nike, Starbucks, General Motors, and Apple, added those together, doubled that number, that's the estimated revenue generated by human trafficking in the world right now. Now, that's a staggering number. And, you know, Brittany, Neil, I like to believe that if I was alive in the mid-1800s, I'd be fighting against slavery. I'd be an abolitionist. Or if I was an adult in the 1960s, I would have been fighting for civil rights in America. Well, this is a civil right that's been ripped away from tens of millions of people. This is slavery. It's not in the headlines. There's no civil war being fought but there is a war and it needs to be fought. And for the sake of these people who are enslaved, my company, we are trying to devote a significant portion of our profits to fighting human trafficking and rescuing its victims. And I would love to raise awareness and you know, ultimately raise about a billion dollars to help fight this, this great evil. So that's one of the things that passively investing in real estate passive wealth generation with you know relatively stable streams of income can generate and that's one of the things I'm really excited about doing.
1: Well, while we're on the subject, is there somewhere people can go to learn more about what it is that you guys are doing? You know,
0: I would just recommend a couple organizations. One real obvious one is called Exodus. That's E X O D U S C R Y. C-R-Y, exoduscry.com. They created an amazing documentary Called nefarious or nefarious, however you want to say it. And they are well worthy of funding. And you really should, if you have the stomach for it, watch this amazing documentary to learn more. That's what opened my eyes to this whole great evil.
2: Awesome. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes for people to easily find and educate themselves.
1: All right. Okay. So you have gone, um, you've been on a whole journey with real estate. You started off. Uh, you said with house flipping, things like that. How did you go about getting yourself educated in real estate?
0: So at first, I went to a, you know, a couple of different of those, uh, seminars. They were invitations by some of the gurus to come back and spend thousands. And then ultimately, it would have been tens of thousands to learn more. And I went to a couple of those. And I don't know how I did it. But I was able to sniff out that this was not going to be good for me. And I found out, you know, years, actually 15 years later now, that a lot of people felt really burned by their experience in some of those guru seminars. And I'm really glad that I didn't do it. What I did do, though, is when I was in my early 50s, I decided to do Class B value-add multifamily full-time. I realized, hey, this is definitely what I want to do, but I don't have decades to work my way slowly up the ladder in this. I've got to get going. And so I convinced a friend of mine and I, we, we spent $25,000 one-time fee to join an organization that mentored us in Class B value-add multifamily. And there was never any additional fee unless we wanted to partner with them in a deal, and then there would be fees and costs. But we were so glad we did that. We learned the ropes of syndication. We learned how to do our own deal. We, we've just had such a good time with that organization. And we also never got upsold. You know, we never there was never any additional seminar, additional charge. And we still consult them pretty much every week now. And it's been almost five years. And so uh, really recommend finding an organization, a mentor like that. And uh, Neil, I think you're in, in one as well that where there's more of, it's not like a guru slick selling effort and I really appreciate the one you're in as well. So yeah, Yeah,
2: it's really important to find a mentor that actually wants to mentor you instead of take your money.
1: Well and I, I think it's important to the best mentor is a mentor who's doing what you want to be doing right now. There's a lot of mentors, you know, who are sort of they retire from whatever it was they were doing and now that's all they do is they mentor. And I think a lot of times that their knowledge goes stale with what the market is doing and it's not necessarily, they're not quite as up to date on what's going on in the market. And so I don't think those always make the best mentors. Right. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's true. I absolutely agree. And some of the, you know, I I think it's also really good if you can find a mentor who's lived through one or two recessions, you know, I like to say that we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know when the market's going to turn, but there are going to be ups and downs and it's, I tried to coin a term on bigger pockets uh, recently called new rule. That would be a new guru, mm-hmm. somebody who has not lived through the last recession and thrived through it. I'm looking for mentors and I want to listen to people who have been through many recessions and have advice to give. For example, a quote I heard, I might butcher it, I heard it this morning from Warren Buffett. He said, "When the tide goes out, we'll, do, we'll know which swimmers have no bathing suits."
1: Mm. And
0: I think you know, I was at a seminar from one of the world's most famous multifamily syndicators. Actually, I was at a seminar in Miami, Florida, in December, and this guy came on stage completely unexpectedly. I guess the host invited him, but he—I didn't know he was there. I, he wasn't on the agenda, and he said, "It's okay." He said, "Hey." Get into multifamily. It's okay if you overpay. It's okay to overpay. Just get in the game. And I thought there was going to be a punchline like it was a joke. He was serious. He has been, and this guy has a Bentley car. He he flies in his own Gulfstream jet. But he's overpaying for multifamily. Well, you know what? he's smart and he's very very wealthy and i started i went back to my hotel and i started wondering wait have i been listening to the wrong mentors have we has our great caution these last 5 years while well, he's been making literally tens of millions has it been ill founded i don't think so because warren buffett and people like him say that's the exact opposite of their approach you know they're buying when other people are selling and and you know the rest and this guy is saying, just keep buying. It doesn't matter what you pay. Mm. I'm worried about that. And I'm worried about a lot of multifamily investors right now. And I think a lot of them are going to lose money. And it could happen anywhere, in self-storage, anywhere else as well.
1: Yeah. Well, you wrote, uh, you wrote an article. You wrote a great article uh, on Bigger Pockets recently about margin of safety. And I'd like you to sort of touch on that briefly, because I think we're sort of on that subject mm. right now.
0: Yeah. You know, I had an engineering degree, and we had something called the safety factor, and basically, it said that we had to engineer bridges, roads, anything else to about three times what they would actually need to hold. So, if the largest truck is 66,000 pounds, then it had to be engineered to about 200,000 pounds. I thought that was ridiculous as a 19 year old. Mm-hmm. I, I knew so much. And, uh, <laughs> but now I'm listening to, I'm watching the, the video, the documentary series, The Men Who Build America. You know, one out of every four bridges back in the 1800s used to fail before they started doing that lots and lots of people died and so the point is we need to have a margin of safety in anything we're doing whether it's time whether it's investing whether it's anything we do we need to think about okay what are several things that could go wrong and if they all went wrong what kind of what would be the effect and so The goal in the margin of safety idea, which was a Buffett idea, by the way, Uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett have used that term a lot. The goal is to think about several things that could go wrong and then add those kind of together and then put a safety factor on and say, okay, if all these four, not if all hundred things that could go wrong went wrong, but if four major things went really wrong, would I be able to maintain this asset? And so that's the goal is to buy at a price where you could say yes to that question or leverage your assets a level that you where you could say yes to that question. You know, Wellings Capital has a couple of different funds and we invest in self-storage, mobile home parks, multifamily. And one of our operators that we invest in has under 50% leverage right now. You know, he'll probably end up at 60 but. The point is he's not up at 75, 80, 85 you know, taking all these risks. He's trying to build in a margin of safety with his investments in a number of different ways, and that's just one of them.
1: All right. So you talked about financing a lot of those early deals with the money from the sale of your first business. But right. as I recall, you had sort of a riches to rags to riches story. Is that correct? Oh, yeah,
0: Absolutely you want me to go into that a little bit
1: a little bit yeah we're mainly trying to focus on more on now and how you how you financed your deals okay on on the on the upside upside
0: okay great so in 1997 when i sold my company we had almost 1.9 million dollars in the bank we actually did a lot with charity at that point so we had less than that but At any rate, 10 years later, I found myself going into the Great Recession. Of course, not being able to see forward and knowing that we were going into this Great Recession, just knowing everything seemed to be grounding to a halt. And I found myself uh, one Sunday morning sitting in my chair thinking, okay, here I am, two and a half million dollars in debt. What am I going to do? Now, thankfully, it was all tied to real estate. So there was all these credit cards, it's not like I'd invested in some highly leveraged Foreign exchange, you know, thing that it it could go to zero, but it was real estate, and I had no idea how bad it was going to get. And I had this idea: what would George Mueller do? Now, George Mueller was a hellion in Germany in the early 1800s, and he turned into sort of a saint. And he moved to England, and uh, when he moved to England, he became a pastor, and he began trying to teach people to manage their finances. Teach people to actually manage their time, to build margin in their life. And he decided to start adopting orphans. And so he started adopting orphans off the street of Bristol, England. And he raised something like $200 million in today's dollars. Seems like it should be more than that, even because he housed a total of 10,000 orphans over the years. And he did it all on faith and he did it all without ever borrowing a penny. He was Really against debt. So I said, What would George Mueller do? Well, first of all, he would not have been in debt. So I already failed. But (laughs) if he inherited my situation, what would he do? He would have been really generous. And so I have a real desire to leave a legacy and involve my kids in my business. And I haven't done a great job of involving the kids in the business, but I thought this is a golden opportunity. So I called my kids together and my wife together and I said, Hey, we're going to do something really crazy. Uh, starting January 1st, 2008, we are going to start giving our way out of debt. And of course, they didn't know what I was talking about because neither did I it didn't feel like, but we said, we're going to start setting aside a very generous amount. We're going to give to charities and church and things that we're passionate about starting January 1st. We're going to give a certain amount every week and we're going to see where it leads us it might end up in bankruptcy, but that's already the path I'm on anyway. So I don't know if that'll be any worse. And if it goes well, well, we'll see what happens. So we started that January 1st. I'll tell you on January 28th, to shorten the story, I met a guy in a Subway restaurant who was a very smart real estate developer. He gave me an idea. That idea turned into one of those light bulb aha moments. I took it down to the county planning and zoning people. And I said, can I divide, subdivide my five acre waterfront property by doing this using your law? And they said, well, that's crazy. That law was meant to prevent you from... And the lady was stunned. And mm-hmm. she said, I've been working here for decades. Nobody's ever had such an outlandish idea. And yes, you can do that. So we it, there was a lot more time. There was bankers and lawyers and all kinds of things involved and a lot more hard work for the next 13 months but i'll tell you 13 months later we were debt free and i can tell you that my kids got to watch that firsthand so that is for as far as a family real estate story that is one that i really cherish that's
2: Mm -hmm. awesome it's very much in line with a lot of the uh kind of woo-woo. the, yeah, it's in the, woo. <laughs> it's in the, in the woo-woo realm, the woo-woo of like, had like the book, you are a badass, um, and with money, money yeah. and like the all goat, of where the goat, you basically like, giver. you, um, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, you think your way into what you want or, you know, you, you put out yeah. what you need right. and, and, um, and no, it's amazing though. It's because it really, when you give you, you generally get back. It seems like karma,
0: Really yeah, weird. you know, wow. some people call it karma. Some people call it the <laughs> law of sowing and reaping, and yeah, law of I think it's a universal law. Um, yeah, yeah this I law it's of a attraction was law. what
2: I was trying to think of, not
0: right. You know, and it's it's proven over and over through history. It doesn't always play out the same because it's not like there's some bending machine in the sky that you can always put a quarter in and always get a candy bar out of. But I'll tell you this: it really worked in that case. And it really taught me and my kids a lesson that I have seen played out over and over again. My son now, who's 25, he's a real estate investor, and I've seen incredible generosity in him that's just amazing to me. So I'm really thrilled for the outcome of that, uh, what seemed to be a train wreck 10 years ago.
2: That's awesome. That's great. How do you go about financing your deals now?
0: So we, Wellings Capital has made a shift from being a syndicator, because we've been banging our head up against the wall, not finding the margin of safety in multifamily for the last four or five years. And so we actually made a shift recently to a fund model, and our fund is actually looking to partner with operators who have dec- years or decades of track record, who have access to off market deals that we would never see, who have a great proven team. And we're actually you know, spending a lot of time getting to know these operators one-on-one. We're meeting with them. They're, we're going to their headquarters. We're going to their assets. And then we're actually trusting them to figure out the leverage, like the one I mentioned earlier, who's under 50% leverage right now. We're trusting them to pull off the assets and the operations and everything else. And we are giving our investors a chance to diversify their money by investing in a group of these assets through our fund. And we're spreading it across different operator asset classes, geographies, and specific assets, of course. And so that diversification uh, doesn't have any leverage with it. So the leverage is all at the operator level.
2: So just because I'm still learning as we go along this journey, If I'm understanding correctly, the difference between syndication and a fund is that with syndication, the investors are getting to, you're bringing them the syndication deal and they can choose to invest. With a fund, are they saying, I'm giving you X amount of dollars and then you're more making decisions on where that's going?
0: Yeah, a fund is just a syndication of a whole lot of deals.
1: Okay. Is it it also called a blind fund?
0: Yeah, a blind or semi-blind pool. If I want to get into the technicality of a blind would be I can do anything with the money. You have to trust me. Semi-blind, which is what we're doing, is we're saying, here are the parameters. We're going to do these real estate asset classes with this level of debt, this level of risk, and everything in here will fit into that box. So yeah, but it's what you it's pretty much what you said.
1: So now with running your fund, how much time would you say your real estate endeavors take you per week nowadays? I mean,
0: I would guess 50 hours a week and I actually could put in a whole lot more if I was, if I had the time and to create more content. So, I mean, so yeah, it's full-time for sure.
1: And what would you say is your highest ROI activity that you do?
0: So I've got four of them. Great question. One would be writing books, and I've written only two, but I'm working on two more. Uh, number two, it'd be bigger pockets posts. Number three, bigger pockets video. Number four, being a guest on podcasts like yours. And then I'd say five, and I'd say somewhat down the list would be hosting my own podcast.
1: And My podcast
0: started... is called How to Lose Money.
1: That's right, How to Lose Money.
0: And so we're not talking about commercial real estate investing on there, although we do get into it quite often. It's not the topic, and we're always talking about our guests' stories. So we're not talking about what we're doing as much. So I don't know. Maybe I should start another podcast that's focused on you know real estate investing, and uh, and that would be more profitable, and maybe we will at some point.
2: Gotcha. What is the I'm just curious what your podcast is is about.
0: Yeah. So how to lose money is, you know, I was tired. I used to go to these family conferences of father and daughter retreats. Actually, it was in Callaway Gardens, Georgia, in a beautiful yeah. garden. And I took my daughter every year for I think seven straight years. And the panelists and the speakers would always talk about what Great families they had, and you know all the good things they were doing. And my daughter even admitted once she was a little jealous. She's like, "Man, they're they're doing such fun trips to Europe, and they even want to go on a space flight to the moon or something someday." And our family seems kind of boring by comparison. Of course, in my town, you know, our family seemed like we were the ones that were doing all the fun stuff. But I started asking these panelists. You know, I would ask, "You tell us about your failures. Tell us about where you had problems." what went wrong? Because I could see the guys, we had these tables of, you know, like 10 people, father and daughters. And I could see the men were discouraged. They're like, well, I'll never be like them. So why try? That was the prevailing feeling in the room. And I don't think the speakers realized they were causing this. So I started saying, tell us about what went wrong. Tell us about your failures. Deer in the headlights.
1: I'm serious.
0: They would never be able to answer the question. And so... Or they were unwilling to. Well, we got to know one of the speakers pretty well and their family and their daughters were telling my daughters one day, man, we fight so much at home. We have arguments and fights and we're better now, but we used to. And I that just kind of opened my eyes. I thought, well, this is one of the most admirable families I know. And they used to fight. So I feel like there's hope. And so yeah. all that is to say, when I started a podcast, I wanted to talk to entrepreneurs, investors business owners who had had failures along the way and what they learned from them. And I think there's so much to learn and so much hope to be gained knowing that I'm not alone because every one of us know that we fail. And so knowing that we're not alone and knowing that there's hope was incredibly helpful to me and I'm hoping it is to our audience as well. We've done about 150 shows now. We're wow. about two years into it we're having a lot of fun.
2: That's, that's fantastic. Great. I'm excited. I'm, I'm going to download that today and, and take a look. And I think that's, I mean, failure is kind of the, it's the human condition, but it's it's necessary. It's how we learn. And I think that's actually with the the gurus out there. A lot of times they don't talk about their failures. Right. And so there's no way to really replicate what they're doing because the, they sure as hell failed at some point. Yeah. And that's what they built their empire off right. of. Is those failures? Those are how we learn and figure out what to do better. And I think you're exactly right. You know, when people don't talk about that, that's what's so powerful for a lot of people who are in any business. Like I follow a lot of nutrition people as a nutritionist, and the people who just talk about what they do now and they show, you know, pictures of the perfect food or the perfect workout, or it's very discouraging. And that's, you know, a, that's a whole other topic about social media and causing mm-hmm. issues. But the people that, I follow and keep following are the ones that talk about where they are currently struggling or failing. They're actually a lot of the nutritionists that have health problems. I follow several that have like autoimmune diseases, they are much more inspiring. I learn much more from them for from their problems and failures than I do from someone just saying, Well, this is what I do and this is, you know, these are my successes and and that's yep. I mean, that's what I'm going through myself. I'm going through some health issues myself. And I had to go on to my audience and say, it feels shameful in here, but I'll be able to help you more with this experience that is going to be hard for me and is hard for me and scary yeah. and, you know, et cetera. But I'm going to learn so much and now I can pass it on to you. And and that's right. it's so much more valuable.
0: Absolutely agree.
2: there's my
1: no no it's (laughs) and I and I also I also think it's a great podcast of great subject matter it's also the idea of a close carrot so many people start off in real estate investors and they're learning from somebody who has a billion dollars in real estate and that person has forgotten what it was like to try and and get that boulder moving and it's um you know so sometimes it's um one, I think you can learn more from failure, and two, sometimes I think it's better to learn from somebody who's maybe not, not at level ten. Somebody who's right. maybe at level four, and right, I agree. Help you to get level two. Yeah. I agree. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, definitely, it's easier to sort of see yourself in them.
1: Yeah, um, no,
2: and that's kidding. yeah. I mean, I again, I'll go off on my own little tangent, but I've been you know reminding myself lately that whether even if it's been said before or done before or any of those kinds of things, like reiterating all of these things is so important because someone is going to hear you that time, even if they didn't all the times before, didn't hear it from someone else, they're going to hear you. So, all right, for timing, I'm going to kind of combine the next uh, two questions and just for your business right now, um, you know, you're working basically a full-time job doing this. Do you have any systems or employees or anybody, anything that really helps you with your efficiencies and and keeping your business running smoothly?
0: I think the worst thing about having a business probably is employees. <laughs> and the best thing about perhaps having a business is having a great employee. So, I, after years, years of difficulties, struggles, and and a lot of success as well, I've become really, really violent. I can't think of the word. Violently committed to mm-hmm. finding only fabulous employees. So I have a handful. Of people on our team, a guy named Ben, who is amazing. He's like a prodigy. He's been working for us for uh, three and a half years, right out of college at Liberty University in Virginia. So excited to have him on board. Have another person who graduated high school only back in West Virginia, 20, well, I'd say 35 years ago. So, and she's in her 50s and she's incredibly, incredibly committed to our vision and such a great employee. And so we love having her. And um, then we have an outsourced accountant, outsourced IT person, et cetera, that just do things for us as needed. So I think it's really important as an entrepreneur to focus on your strengths and offload your weaknesses. I'm reading uh, Ray Dalio's book called Principles, and he talks about the four ways you can approach things that you're not good at. And that is number three, I think. And that is what we are doing every chance we can.
2: Awesome. So with your fund now, are you investing in properties that are outside of the state you live in, long distance investing? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. You know, I was on a webinar. We have the Wellings Growth Fund and a Wellings Income Fund And the other night on the webinar, they said, well, what's the geography you're focused on? And I said this, I said, you know, we used to be focused in the Carolinas, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Virginia, looking for multifamily when we were going to be the syndicator because that's where we are. But now we have a different task. We are trying to find world-class, best-in-class operators, and we're trusting them to pick the geographies that are near them or comfortable for them and we're counting on those guys to make decisions that uh you know that we are choosing to forego by trusting them so for example uh bigger pockets guest number 286 i think i won't get any more detail on that he had an amazing podcast july 4th of 2018 i think it came out so i might as well just tell you his name his name's aj osborne Mm -hmm. and some of uh, our listeners might recommend might know who that is because he took the reno nevada super kmart he bought it and he has seven and a half million dollars in it two and a half million in cash five million in uh loans and he sold off the parking lot to an apartment developer and he converted it to a self-storage. He cut it in half. He was in a coma for months during this time. And he now says when it's stabilized, it should be worth 21 to $24 million. That's on a $2.5 million cash investment by friends and family around him. Now, he's in Idaho. He's doing this deal in your state. He's in Reno. And I would never have thought to do a deal in Reno or Idaho. But would I have loved to have been part of that deal where he's going to get a nine hundred percent return in the end? I think it is. Yeah, I think I'd like to be part of that. So that's a very long answer. But that's why I'm not focused on geography. I'm trusting operators who are.
1: That's awesome. How often do you tend to? Do you ever visit these properties yourself?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm going to Lancaster, Ohio to view a a mobile home park that was just acquired into the fund. I'm going to be there on Tuesday. I plan to be in Tennessee visiting two potential properties for the fund in a a week after that around Nashville. I'll be in Florida three weeks after that visiting two or three self-storage facilities that were already acquired into the fund that we are investing with. So yeah, we think it's absolutely crucial. There was a in November, after I saw you last, Neil, I visited two weeks after I saw you. In fact, I visited a facility we were one day away from investing in. And uh, the timing worked out such that I, it was just kind of a short notice thing. And I found that there were other self-storage facilities being built in the same area that the operator was not even aware of. Mm-hmm. And so we were kind of stunned. We called them. We said, look, the deal's off. It was painful. We already spent three or 4000 in attorney's fees, getting this all set up, getting the paperwork done. And we didn't invest. And you know what? It was really, really good that we didn't, number one. But number two, the word got out completely unexpectedly to me. The word got out on these two investor forums that we had pulled the plug on this. And I've got at least a dozen or more investors who have contacted me and said, we heard what you did. We heard how you pulled the plug. We want to talk about investing with you in the future. Mm. So okay. yes, going out to see these is critical. Yeah. Getting to know the operators is critical. Even though we're, we're never going to be the majority uh, investor and being able to pull our weight, we don't, we'll not be able to pull the strings on when they should buy and sell. and We wouldn't want to having their relationship with them is going to be helpful when times get tough and they always get tough.
1: Yeah.
2: So what do you believe is the most critical skill that a new investor looking to thrive in your niche um, would need to master?
1: I think
0: they need to know the difference between investing and speculating. And I mentioned it earlier. Mm -hmm. So critical. I think discipline too. You know, the discipline to not follow your heart to do something that you want to do that you already said in advance, you shouldn't do. So setting up rules, staying yeah. disciplined to those rules, and being accountable to yourself and those around you, not to chase something because it feels like a good idea. Now, there is a place for following your gut, and if you have a bad feeling about something but you can't quantify it, you should listen to that bad feeling because it's usually right.
1: So if you could hit a magic reset button and go back and start your investing career all over again, is there anything that you would do differently?
0: Yeah, I would have started in commercial real estate right away, you know, and I think a lot of people work harder than they need to, to make less than they could. And what I mean is people with a full-time job who are chasing all kinds of opportunities on the side, hoping that that one house flip or will be like the one on HGTV or that, that key to freedom will come. And it usually doesn't in the part-time realm. So honestly, if people would only realize, Neil, if they could take $100,000, if they had that much, and they could invest it right with a passive commercial real estate investment, that that $100,000, and I know this sounds outrageous, but the math is very simple to prove, that $100,000 can grow to two, three, four, even $5 million dollars. Over 20 or 30 years, especially if you can do it in a tax avoided, a tax beneficial way. 100,000 into four or five million, yeah, it's absolutely provable on an Excel spreadsheet. And I actually ran this by a guy who's been investing for decades, and he said it's absolutely true. And so here's the thing if I could keep my day job that I like, and just invest 50, 100, 200,000 on the side in something like that, that's a pretty good deal to retire with if you start young enough. So what I would do if I was going to push restart is I would create opportunities for people to invest like that, which is exactly what I'm trying to do now in my mid 50s.
1: Yeah, it's really it's sort of where it's exactly where we are. And it's something I it's a I don't know, an affirmation that I say to myself every morning when I, t- I, I tell myself that, look, one of the reasons I'm doing this is because so many of my friends and family have no idea that this is even possible. Their idea of, I talk to people about investing every day and most of them when I ask them what they consider to be a good return, they go, well, I don't know, you know, six, 7% on, uh, right. you know, on my mutual fund or my 401k. And, and I say, you know, have you ever done the math about what you know, that's a good return, you know, if you start early enough, but if you're ever going to really really like build any wealth, that's not going to really build a whole lot of wealth. You got to get up into the 10, 12. Now, you know, let's start talking about 18% and things like that. And on hard assets, hard assets that are not going to disappear. I had one of my best friends invested $250,000 in an oil company back in, um, you know, probably five years ago. And that investment went to zero. Yep. You know, so it's um, no. I mean, I love real estate. I love what real estate can do for me, but it's more about what I want to spread the gospel. Yeah, <laughs> is so much of what it is. I All hear right. you.
0: It's so true. And, so, and you know, one of the reasons I was able to pull out of the two and a half million in debt is it was real estate. It wasn't at the bottom of an oil well that went to zero. And I've yeah. done that too, by the way.
1: Yeah. All right. We have one more question, then we'll let you go because I know you've got to get moving. So I want you to imagine that you're standing in in front of a room full of aspiring real estate investors who are, they have full-time jobs and families, a lot like maybe when you were starting out, they're battling their way through fears, doubts, a lack of time or money. What are two or three strategies that you could recommend for them that they could implement within a month that would help them along?
0: So You know, my son was about 20 years old, and he wanted to get into house flipping. And so I said, you know, you could do a postcard campaign, but you'd be competing with guys like Mike in my little town of Roanoke, Virginia, who spends $55,000 a month on letters and postcards. How are we going to compete with him? Well, you got to find a different way to do it. And so I said, take the time, get in your car, drive around. If it's summer, look for yards with weeds where the the grass is high and the shutters are down and uh, look for opportunities to find those houses that maybe nobody else found online. And he made a list of about 25 or 30 homes in about 10 hours of driving around. Not a bad investment. And then we started to follow up on those and he actually ended up flipping three houses. Not out of that, just out of that group, but we, we ended up flipping three houses together before he started investing in land. But um, so that's one strategy drive around, look yourself. Number two, I would do lease option sandwiches. I was on a bigger pockets live stream today, and somebody asked me, "What? How can I get started? Actually, it was a separate question, but anyway, $5,000. I'm 19 years old. I said, Consider doing a lease option sandwich. And basically, that's a way to get in, get control of a house on a rent-to-own basis from an owner, do a minor improvements, like maybe you know, cut the grass and paint it, change carpet or, or maybe nothing, and then turn around and rent to own it to somebody else. And you get in the middle. That's why it's a sandwich. You're in the middle between the, the seller and the buyer. And you can make a substantial profit doing that with very little more than your time invested. Number three, and this is much harder, but you can wholesale. People getting started um, can find wholesale deals, even if they're not ready to be Chip and Joanna Gaines yet and do a beautiful uh, restoration flip or start in single-family rentals. I'll tell you what I probably wouldn't do and people often have to learn on their own, and that is try to build a stable of 50, 100, 200 single family homes. It's very, very hard to not so much to build it, but to maintain a group of homes like that. Even if you have great property managers, it's really hard. It's much easier to get a 100 unit multifamily than 100 single family homes, as you can imagine.
1: Well, because eventually, as a good friend of mine who talks about, he's like, eventually, the phone call is eventually going to come to you. Even if you've got a a property manager, the buck is eventually going to stop with you. You're the property owner, and you're the only one you can really count on. And so, uh, even if you've got a great property manager, that property manager could die, that property manager could retire, a property manager could Develop a drug problem, right? You, know, you could become lower on their priority list. You know, just eventually yeah. you're you're going to be the one doing it. So
0: right, it's absolutely true.
1: Well, listen, Paul, we could talk for another hour, I'm sure, but you're a busy guy. We've got a four year old to take care of. And All right. I've really, really enjoyed this. And Brittany, Brittany did too. Brittany had to uh, step away to deal with the, uh, the four-year-old. But it's been great talking to you. Hopefully we can do this again sometime.
0: It really has, Neil. Thank you so much. I wish you the very best. It's really been an honor to be on the show. Thanks. All
1: right. Thanks, Paul. Okay. Well, that was Paul Moore. Paul's such a great guy. It was really uh, wonderful to get to spend some time with him.
2: Yes, definitely. I enjoyed learning about... All the other things he was doing, you yeah. know, I, I like obviously talking about the real estate piece. I think it it's much more interesting when we get into
1: sort of the peripheral part of it. Sure. You're saying real estate's boring? No,
2: no. I'm just saying that like it can be a little bit repetitive. <laughs> no. And that's okay. As I said in the actual interview that saying the same things over and over again are important because someone will hear them at some point and yeah. that haven't heard it before. <laughs> And I think that the extras are more helpful, just like with the failure, you know, chat that we had and all that kind of stuff. I I think they make these people seem like, uh, or not seem, but they make them real people, not an unattainable goal. Yeah. um, You know, something like that.
1: So where would you say, how much knowledge do you think he started off with?
2: Well, I don't know that he necessarily started off with a ton of knowledge. He kind of... He was flipping, so that doesn't really require a lot. It sounds like he's kind of just I mean, he had an MBA. He's probably kind of a smart guy generally speaking and had a lot of like generalist knowledge and then kind of, you know, funneled that into experiences and learning from those experiences.
1: Yeah. He mentioned using a he did sign on with a mentor.
2: Yes, later on. Yeah.
1: Once he decided to go into multifamily spent, he said, about $25,000 uh, on the, the mentor.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I'm actually going to go with like three to six years. I think he was like really... Uh, yeah. You know, I think he was pretty well-educated. Going, He had a lot of business experience. Yeah. He had experience running his own business. It wasn't just... He decided, woke up one day and decided, I'm going to learn to do real estate.
2: Yes. Yes, definitely. And I, I, he kind of mentioned or or insinuated that that path isn't necessarily necessary
1: he did he actually he did he talked about that quite a bit he said he tends to kind of think that people who are you know maybe trying to build up one house at a time and buy the single family home and then the duplex and then the quadplex and move up He, he sort of felt like you're better off just sort of jumping right into commercial real estate.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Or jump into what you're interested in. Just find that mentor that that person to help you take those leads. Yeah. All right. So money, uh, we didn't really talk about specifics on money during this interview too much as far as like what he invests, how much money does it require to start in this I yeah
1: mean, he it was complicated because he started off with quite a bit of money uh very early yeah. on with the sale of this well, company
2: let's talk about with like a, a fund a blind fund
1: yeah how I, much
2: do you need in one of those to really do anything
1: i would say most of that more of that would probably be dependent on the individual operators the sponsors of the syndicators that you're working with and i would say as a general rule most of them would want you coming with at least $500,000. Okay. So if uh, Paul's primary thing if Paul just had his own money and he wanted to just invest with a syndicator that's a that's a different ball game probably talking a minimum of about $50 to $100,000. Yeah. Um, and he even mentioned that at the end. But if you're somebody who wants to build a fund A semi-blind fund like Paul has, I would say probably five hundred thousand dollars is going to be a minimum. Okay. How much time? Do you recall how much time he said he was working on this? No, he works a full-time job with this.
2: And I will mention that he also, especially because he's doing a fund, even if he was working as a syndicator, he is basically building a thought leadership platform. Correct. Which increases the amount of time that he is working on it. So if that's not really what you want within your real estate investing to be a thought leader, um, then that could maybe go down depending on what you're doing. Now, if you want to run a blind fund, you sort of do have to have a thought leadership platform or at least a business platform, which nowadays a business platform is essentially a thought leadership platform, whether you're Nike or, you know, a shop on the corner yeah. Um, you tend to have a social media presence and and different things that, that help you market. So I guess it just maybe depends on how you're doing so. it. But I, he he, it's a full-time job. Yeah. It's a full-time job.
1: Yeah. Uh, location. Do you think uh, this is the kind of thing where he could do anywhere in the world?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think especially once he builds the relationships with the different operators, yeah. when you, I think if you're, you know, obviously you're buying um, doing property stuff in if your geographic area or geography as he was calling it mm-hmm. is in the United States then you need to like establish those contacts in the United States before you start traveling the world <laughs> yeah. um, or you're not gonna but like once things are established it sounds like it's
1: pretty location it varies depending on where yeah. you want to be that where that location would be well know, he he sort of then. talked about he the, he's not really tied in by geography he's primarily focused on finding the good sponsors and then yeah. letting them um, they worry about the geography. they worry about the geography. yeah yeah but like i said
2: really what i mean is that he couldn't find these operators it's probably unlikely to find these operators and establish a relationship with them if he wasn't in the same country i
1: agree them. yes absolutely no, so he, he has to, he has to be, and he mentioned that he's been traveling a lot lately and that he, he has visited several of the investments that they're working on. And and I'm sure he has been sitting down uh, to meet with the, the operators as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was Paul Moore, the operator of Wellings Capital, a, a semi-blind uh, real estate fund focused on self-storage, mobile home parks, and a little bit of multifamily. And uh, we appreciate his time again. And, uh, yeah,
2: it was really good talking to him. Yeah. And you'll find all the information for Paul in the show notes.
1: Yeah. And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.